and welcome to Dairy Dialogue podcast number 75. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and this is our weekly look at the world of dairy. And today's show isn't all about coronavirus, although we do have one interview dedicated to it, which is all about safety, cleaning, disinfection and hygiene. I'm not sure that there's one corner of the world that hasn't been affected in some way by what's happening right now, and of course there are different degrees of suffering depending on where you are. And wherever you are, I hope you're safe and dealing well enough with the measures in place to help prevent even more misery. So much has changed since the last podcast. Some things haven't, of course. There's still no toilet paper anywhere to be seen, as well as a whole load of other products that also seem to be flying off the shelves. The last time I put the podcast together, the UK was still in measures to simply increase distancing. But in the past few days, it's gone to a lockdown status. In my little village in rural Scotland, you'd hardly really notice anything has happened because it's always quiet. I managed to do a very long hike on Sunday before the complete lockdown and did more than 20 kilometres and saw one person, and even then at a great distance. Plenty of sheep and cows, including the unusual belted Galloway, which you can find pretty much only in this region, which is black with a white stripe around it. I never tire of seeing them. If you're anything like me, you flip-flop between worrying about health and worrying about the economic toll this is having on so many people, but for every story of selfishness and hoarding, seems that there are ten more about acts of kindness, so I'll choose those over the negative. Of course, the news this week is dominated by the crisis, but first, I'll run through who our guests are on the show this week. Of course, all travel is pretty much cancelled, which makes total sense, and it means that after Expo West was cancelled, our reporter Beth Newhart caught up with Rachel Marshall, Technical Engagement Manager of the Sports and Active Lifestyles Portfolio at NZMP, who was supposed to be at the show. I had a great chat with Peter Littleton, Technical Director at Christine's Food Hygiene, about cleaning safety with respect to coronavirus, And it seems like a lifetime ago when we were actually going to big food events. But I do have three interviews from the Salon de Fromage event in Paris, which was, crazily, only one month ago. I think it may well have been the last food show before everything started being postponed or cancelled. So from that event, we have interviews with Betty Costa, owner of Lamuse Cheese Shops and Cheese Exporters in the Netherlands, Nadia Herrera, Export Manager at Grupo Ganaderos de Fuerteventura in the Canary Islands, and Elena Kostova, Market Maker at Bulgarian company Harmonica. And we also have a weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at INTL FC Stone. And so let's get to this week's news from DairyReporter.com. We had an article on how Koreans respond to cheese, the US setting out new COVID-19 guidelines for the food industry, Friesland Campina Wamco set to buy a dairy company in Nigeria. In New Zealand, Fonterra published its interim results. And on financial reports, Hochdorf has also published its annual results. A report says that milk powder sales have gone up 375% during the coronavirus crisis. Ariel has launched some new infant formulas with lactoferrin. And the European Milk Board says that, forget the trouble dairy has had in the past, the coronavirus has the potential to be the worst dairy crisis ever. 
Both Europen and the European Dairy Association have urged the importance of industry in getting through the crisis. Europen says packaging is critical during coronavirus tackling measures, and the EDA also saying the same for dairy, how crucial it is to keep the products flowing, and asking the European Commission to take measures to help. In the US, the NMPF has ramped up coronavirus information on its website as a resource for the industry, and Dairy Reporter and some of its sister sites have also created a database of all of the articles on the coronavirus crisis that pertain to the food industry. You can read all of these and more at dairyreporter.com. All right, let's get to this week's guests. Our reporter Beth Newhart had all of her plans ready for interviews at Expo West until it was cancelled. Big events are hugely important for many attending companies and it's not only an opportunity to meet existing customers and make new ones, but also to launch products. NZMP, which is a part of Fonterra, planned on being at the show and launching new products, and so Beth caught up with Rachel Marshall, the technical engagement manager for the new NZMP portfolio, about the company's lost plans for Expo West and how the ingredients will move forward to launch. All of our ingredients are either launched or in the midst of being launched, um, aside from the show, so the show was partly, it was really about you know, a, a vehicle to do it, not that it was a be-all and end-all. So we'll be, um, you know, there are press releases and things going out. Obviously, we're prom- promoting um, online channels and as well as going to our key target customers. So nothing slowing it, us down at all. Can you tell me a bit about what you were going to exhibit and what are the new ingredients from NZMP? Sure. So the key, I guess, new ingredients that we, there's a number of things that were new or newish to us, but the, the key actual launch ones at the show were, um, was in addition, three additions to our bar portfolio. We've been in protein bars for, for many years and we have some really great ingredients in, in that space, um, particularly a, a functional whey protein concentrate that is, uh, enables bars to be a lot softer over time and, and stable over time. Usually whey protein tends to get quite firm in bars and especially quite chewy. This one is softer and less chewy and a, a lot more stable. You could either use it by itself or use it with other ingredients. And we still, even with the new additions to our range, we recommend that um, WPT510 Flex, Flex Bar, we're calling it, um, is um, what we would recommend you use as the base of formulations and then work from there as to whether you want to to tweak the texture in any particular direction. So um, the way I liken bar formulating is to run like running a bath. If you just use hot water or cold water, you're probably not going to have a particularly nice bath. But people tend to formulate protein bars with a range of ingredients so they can tweak the texture into the particular zone they want it to be and get the the benefits of various ingredients, whether it be more chewy or less chewy, so a more shorter texture so it gets out of your mouth more easily. Some protein bars, as you've possibly experienced, can be quite chewy, almost toffee-like and hard to kind of chew enough to actually be able to swallow them. Um, And then there's what happens over time and, and often bars firm over time. So the three ingredients that we were launching were two whey protein isolate ingredients. Um, the reason for focus, I guess, all, all of the ingredients are isolates. The reason for focusing on isolates is our ingredients. It had some isolates in there, but largely been concentrates. 
which limits the amount you can use because of the sugar content. So the, the strongest brands in the market today are doing very, very low sugar content and the lactose that's carried through from milk um, is obviously deemed a sugar and, and a negative. So we've been limited on how much you can use. So we've got um, OptiBar 892 whey protein isolate, which if you were trying to, to formulate with that one, it gives you high protein, low lactose for one. It helps you to get some more cohesion and to build texture into a bar. And really, it's largely about optimizing the formulation in terms of the composition. So you, if you, you might not make a bar entirely of this because it would be potentially a little bit more to, more cohesive than you want. But if you blend it with other components, you're going to get a really good textured bar and have whey protein isolate on your label. The other whey protein isolate or isolated whey protein is called Short Bar 825 Lactalbumin. This one is very unique in the whey space. If you think about um, a texture map from where the y-axis is from soft to firm and the x-axis is from short or just sort of comes out of your mouth easily when not, not too much chew required versus chewy at the other extreme, most whey ingredients are on the right-hand side of the graph and often towards the firmer, firmer sides so are very cohesive. This particular ingredient, as the name implies by being short bar, is actually quite good to break the texture and it helps to shorten it. So that's very unique for a whey ingredient, meaning you could potentially formulate it with something like the 892 or, or our WPC510, have an entirely whey protein formulated bar, but without it being nearly as chewy as you would get with traditional ingredients that are going to be in, in all whey solutions. So that this one's really giving quite a breakthrough in terms of the texture you're delivering from a whey solution. The closest ingredient today that you would have on the market for such a functionality would be a calcium caseinate, but that's often not deemed as particularly label-friendly these days by consumers. So offering an isolated whey protein as a solution is quite appealing there. And then the final ingredient is a soft bar, short protein soft bar 1000, it's a milk protein. And this gives a lot of softness to a bar formulation, and it's designed to be used in conjunction with other components. So you could use it with, you may or may not want to use it with the soft bar 825, but definitely with the OptiBar 892 or the WPC Flex Bar 510 or a number of other ingredients you could consider this ingredient would be a really good one. If you use it by itself, it's probably going to be too soft, which probably a good problem to have but if you blend it with other ingredients you're going to help to build the texture around it but it's going to really give a nice soft foundation for a bar composition and, and a bar texture so it's going to keep your bar soft over time and give you some softening to counter any firming or firmer ingredients that you might be putting in in the system. How do you think that these ingredients fit into NZMP's existing portfolio? How different are they? They are actually all very different. We, as I said, we've had a number of ingredients in our portfolio for quite a number of years, and we were really looking for new ingredients that are different, and they are extremely different. So the, the OptiBar 892 whey protein isolate, we haven't had anything in that texture zone, I guess, or composition for a whey ingredient before in our texture map. So that one's quite unique. The short bar is extremely unique in that it's a whey ingredient. So as I said, it does behave somewhat like, somewhat like calcium caseinate in terms of the shortening, 
of a bar texture, but the fact that it's all whey is extremely unique, and I believe unique, very unique to the market. Um, and then the soft bar at 1,000 milk protein is much softer than anything else we've seen, and it is a relatively short texture as well, so quite unique to our portfolio. So it's really complementing. We have quite a big, um, I tend to use the word toolbox, of ingredients for bars, and it might be a little bit overwhelming to some to say, well, wow, do you need all of those ingredients? And some formulators, depending on their Preference would use a lot of them or, or some of them would use a much smaller portfolio depending what they're trying to deliver. But these all add unique tools. And how would you say that they reflect what consumers currently want and demand out of their bars? What we're really seeing with bars is a desire for higher protein and lower sugar, particularly in the U.S. market, although a lot of other markets in Europe are seeing it a lot as well and even North Dallas. Down in New Zealand recently, they had a, um, an HPLC bar, which I instantly thought high-performance liquid chromatography, but no, HPLC is high-protein, low-carb mm. bar, and that's, that's what you see in a lot of the markets. And a couple of the big leaders here, like, for example, Quest and One Bar, are definitely in that space where they're delivering 20 to 21 grams of protein in a 60-gram bar and only one gram of sugar. So people are looking for convenience in a nutrition bar that's you know people are busy they're on the go something they can throw in their bag or backpack whatever and grab it on the go but they don't want lots of sugar they don't want the sugar high sugars they become quite a negative so finding ingredients that enable that while delivering the, the good nutrition of high protein and then they also want something that they enjoy you know, gone are the days for except for maybe a tiny niche of the population where if it doesn't taste bad, it's not good for me kind of thinking. People know that bars can taste good and they want them to taste good and they're often making that purchasing decision based on their the sensory quality. So something that's not going not too hard, something that's not too chewy either, and obviously different consumers are going to have different preferences, but across the range, the more indulgent you can get and the more easy to eat, uh, the better for the consumer. Next, we go to a fascinating interview on safety and how companies can tackle coronavirus in terms of hygiene and disinfection with Peter Littleton, Technical Director at Christine's Food Hygiene. The problem we've got with, with this more than anything that we've had before is everybody's an armchair expert because they've got Google. And we're being very, very careful where we're drawing our, um, our source of information from. So we're drawing from the NHS website, the government's website, and also the World Health Organization, because they're the only ones who have really got a verifiable source. Everything else is potentially conjecture. It's built on, at the moment, a complete unknown and that's the thing, the reason that we're getting so many different uh, potential survival rates on hard surfaces is because nobody really knows at the moment this particular variant of, of coronavirus isn't doing what coronavirus-style viruses normally do. And certainly there was some research that, that we, we, we looked at that, that the WHO reported that, yeah, it can, it, it can in ideal circumstances, survive for potentially four or five days on a, for example, a, a door handle or a hard plastic surface. But those conditions are quite exacting in terms of it's got to be a, chill, a sort of chilled environment. It's got to be quite a relatively humid and moist environment. 
And to be fair, by the time the, the virus may still be active on that surface after those times, but the chances of it actually being able to infect a cell and, and it's, if you like, its infectivity is, is dramatically reduced because it, it's in its old age itself. So it's, it's weak and its ability to replicate will be, will be dramatically reduced. So it's not so much whether it's still there as whether it's still viable and infective. What we are seeing is a lot, a lot of people looking to see, well, what can we use to, to well, as they put it, kill it. Um, really, it's inactivation. The thing with this one is it's relatively easy to inactivate if you get to it. Because it's an encapsulated virus, it means that the capsid that surrounds it, if you can break that open, be like cracking an egg. You, know, you crack the eggshell and the contents will disintegrate. And it's the same with, with these encapsulated viruses. They're easier to kill than, or sorry, inactivate, I'm doing it now, than um, things like polio or adenovirus, which have the genetic material exposed all the time. So if you can get to it with, with a good, even something as simple as a good quality soap or good quality detergent, you can break that capsule layer open and that will enable you to, to inactivate the genetic material very, very quickly. There's a lot of people trying to put Sort of virus type decontamination processes in place and now we're, we're running through the different types of dis disinfectants that will help with that really rapidly and to the point where there's there's international shortages on on the alcohol to the gels which you'll have seen in the press anyway and in some of the, the, the sort of hydrogen peroxide based alternatives so we're looking at the simplistic of, of a weak bleach solution being a, an effective control mechanism so we are we are definitely seeing um, an increase. We're definitely seeing a, a real concern from across the, the whole range of our, our customers from food, dairy, and beverage because they are terrified of what what could potentially happen. Now, as far as I know, I'm not aware as yet that we've had confirmed cases in um, food, dairy, or beverage plants, which is the only time people really need to start worrying about alternative disinfection or cleaning measures but what people are doing is sort of getting the getting the chemicals in place I mean alcohol wipes yeah are actually flying off the shelves we're having to we're having to do what the retailers are doing which is people are phoning up and saying I want 20 20 buckets and we're going you can have two but I want 20 I know you want 20 but you can have two because if everybody buys 20 guess what we have none we are having to allocate out materials because people are buying it on the basis of well the toilet rolls in in, in, a, in a in a microcosm you know the, the toilet roll and the hand sanitizer runs have just been phenomenal we're seeing the same thing as our, as i know our competitors are seeing the same issues of running low on raw materials and the raw materials we can get are getting more and more expensive we've seen a, at least a five-fold increase in raw material costs and it's not finished yet. You know, we want our, our customers to be able to access the right chemicals they need to make the plants as safe as they can be. And in terms of that safety, though, when, when we're talking about something like the coronavirus, I mean, if there's a if there's something like, I don't know, like botulism or if there's something like E. coli, then that can be passed on to customers through the product. But this this couldn't be, could it really? Completely different style of organism, um, which is why I'm, 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 I keep correcting myself when I use the term kill, because you don't kill a virus because it's not technically alive. 
it's a it's a strand of genetic material with or without a, a protein capsule around it and a virus can only replicate in a living host so unlike you mentioned there botulism so clostridium botulinum or e coli or, or the good old, our good old friend listeria in in the children particularly in the dairy industry that can replicate and grow in the environment and then reach a break point where it infects food and can survive in the food and be carried through viruses can be transmitted by food but very very rarely and ECHA the European uh, Chemicals Agency and EFSA European Food Safety Agency have already published reports indicating that there is a very very if not no chance at all of um, COVID-19 being carried through in, in food in an effective state now the so, only caveat I'll put on that is that is as of speaking on the um, 19th of March of 1348. Now, somebody may turn around in 10 minutes' time and come up with something completely different because of research work they're doing. But as we sit at the moment, EFTA are saying it's not transmissible via food. So I assume a lot of what you're having to do with a lot of the calls that you're fielding is, is as an information service as much as anything else. Yep. It seems to split into how it can be transmitted and if we get if we do have a confirmed case on on our site how do we decontaminate the area more really to protect the people working there one of the key things you're right with this is is fighting that misinformation and lack of information because i mean let's face it we're we're what the 19th of march um if we were having this conversation the 19th of december you'd be going corona what yeah, the yeah. first reported case wasn't until the 31st. Um, and then January, it really kicked in. Now, fortunately, one of the things we are seeing, which, which may help us in the long run, is China cases are now dropping dramatically. The only new cases they've got uh, this week have been imported in from foreign travelers. So they've had no domestic cases. Italy cases, although they're still high, the key figure to look at is um, on the WHO website. It publishes the figures every day. And one of the figures metrics they're using is the daily um, rate. So the total case case number, yeah, that gives you a picture. But what we're, what we're conscious of is the daily rate number. So we want to see how many people every day are being confirmed. And that has started to level off and is showing some signs of starting to tail off. Now, whether that tale is artificial or real, we'll have to wait and see um, as the data comes through. But it's starting to bring some hope that with the type of control measures that are being suggested now, draconian and hugely inconvenient as they are, can actually help to control the, the spread of this. I mean, let's face it, if we're not seeing each other, if we're not coughing on each other, and people have suddenly, after all these years, realized that actually, yeah, washing your hands is actually quite important, <laughs> which is a shame because we've been banging that message for years, but nobody's really listened. You know, if we're not seeing each other, then, then the chances of person-to-person -person contact is, is reduced. Therefore, cases go down. And of course, you mentioned washing hands and hand sanitizer would be a good second to that, but nobody can get hand sanitizer. We're all trying to fish from the same pond. And there's only so many fish in that damn pond. And if they get all get pulled out, well, as we've seen, we run out of hand sanitizer. Yeah. And the only reason we run out of hand sanitizer is that there's, there's very few places that make the thickening gel for it. 
now the worry is that we've got a lot of people that are starting to produce their own uh, sort of alcohol-based hand disinfectants, a lot of the still breweries, for example, um, and they, I'm hoping they've done a really good job on the R&D for it because you start slapping 60% alcohol in your hands regularly, you dry your skin, and then you potentially run into dermatitis problems. So, you know, there, there needs to be a little bit of caution on, on some of the alternatives. And similarly, mentioned a little while ago, you know, some of the smaller smaller operations, which will be struggling to get hold of disinfectants, you know, they can they can use a weak bleach solution as a as a disinfectant, but that needs to be sprayed, left on for about five minutes, and then rinsed off with clean water. So again, there's a there's a chemical handling issue there that does need to be factored in with the challenges. So I guess that the advice that you're giving people would be very different depending on the scale, because in the dairy industry alone, you've got the small artisan farmer that's just making small cheese on the side from the farm, but then you've got all the way through to the massive dairy plants that some of the dairy cooperatives and some of the dairy companies would have. They are and they aren't, because yes, the, the, you know, the small small supplier may, may have the, the access to the likes of um, cells or Ecolab or Diversity or something, but equally, the larger operations need a lot more of the stuff in order to be able to effectively clean and disinfect. So they're all facing the same challenges, big or small, of what chemicals to use, um, what procedures to use, and crucially with this, when to actually use them. I, I hate to paraphrase uh, Boris Johnson, but his comments about we've got to do the right intervention at the right point and the right time is actually right. You know, if we use all of the virucidal effective chemicals now because we we might have a problem, when we do get a problem, we may not have the chemicals available to be able to do it. So we need to make sure we're using what we've got sensibly and at the right point of the um, of the cycle in order to carry out an effective intervention. So I guess you're just sort of uh, helping your customers best that you can at the moment and getting the information yeah. out there as much as anything. Yeah, I mean, we're producing briefing notes, but we're also briefing our staff. We're looking at continuity plans for here. We're waiting to see what happens with um, the definition of essential personnel. It's certainly, NHS, absolutely no argument. You know, delivery drivers, yep, definitely essential personnel. Okay, we're going to keep the supermarkets open. Fantastic. That means we've got to keep the food factories open. Because if we haven't got the food factories open, the supermarkets have got nothing to sell. Well, if the food factories are going to be open, they're going to have to have access to chemicals in order to be able to clean. So there's a there's an extended cycle there of who needs to be classified in that that in order to keep all these poor buggers that are sitting at home for 14 days twiddling their thumbs and wondering what to do with themselves um, are still going to need to be fed. There is an element there of making sure that the that the, the wheels wheels keep turning so that when we do come out the other side of it, and we will. The world will be a slightly different place, but we will come out of it. China's proven it can be done. The cases can be controlled, you know, and the, and the work is going on for looking for vaccines and effective treatments, et cetera, et cetera. But we just need to make sure that, that when we do come through this, we've still got a, a, a viable, vibrant economy to be able to um, to continue to work. 
As I mentioned earlier, little did I know as I left the Salon de Fromage and the Salon de l'Agriculture in Paris exactly one month ago to the day that the Salon would close early because of coronavirus and the world of face-to-face events would come crashing down right after it. Many have postponed until September and onwards, and some have been put back a year. Others have been cancelled altogether, but obviously they will come back at some point in time. But that event seems like a distant memory now, but the Salon de Fromage was a much bigger and more extensive event than the one two years ago. There were more exhibitors, more visitors, and more countries represented. Last time UK cheeses were being featured, this time it was Spain. When you're walking around these events, catching attendees' eyes is important, and one such company for me was Grupo Ganaderos de Fuerteventura, a company based on Fuerteventura, the second biggest of the Canary Islands. But it wasn't the location of the company that caught my eye, interesting though that is, it was the excellent packaging. And so I spoke to the company's export manager, Nadia Herrera. Our company uh, is located in Fuerteventura, in the Canary Islands. It's a very arid island with no trees and a very scarce uh, rain. The Majorera goat lives in uh, its native to the island of Fuerteventura and it's very well adapted to this uh, uh, arid uh, environment. Uh, so um, it provides a very rich uh, milk, very rich in protein and, and fat, which also provides the smoothness and the, this buttery feeling to the, to the cheese. The cheese, our main uh, product is Majorero, Majorero, which is the PDO. Uh, it, actually, it was the first uh, gold cheese to obtain a PDO in Spain. And uh, we normally coat it with paprika on the rind. It's quite common in the, in the Canary Islands, and it's a way to preserve the cheese and also adding uh, to, uh, a way to add uh, aroma and, and flavor. How um, many different kinds are there? Um, well, we, we have it semi-cured, which is around three months, more or less, and uh, cured, which is uh, over five months, five, six months. Uh, we also elaborate this second line, El Tofio, uh, which also uses uh, goat cheese, it's pure goat cheese, uh, but it's not, uh, it's, it's not in the PDO, uh, so it also, um, we, we can also play with more, uh, a, a higher, um, a bigger variety of cheeses. Uh, so this one, for instance, is coated with gofio, and gofio is this, this uh, powder here, which is made from uh, uh, roasted corn, uh, smashed into this very, very thin powder. And this is um, very unique from the uh, Canarian cuisine. We use it to call the cheeses, which, and it adds uh, very, uh, very subtle notes of cereal to the cheese, and, uh, but it's very uh, widely used in the, in, the, in the Canarian cuisine, even for fish dishes, desserts, and many things. It's uh, something 100% from the Canary Islands. Mm. And, uh, yeah, and it dates back uh, before the Spanish conquer in the 15th century. So it's um, a very um, symbol of the Canarian cuisine. Mm. Mm-hmm. It, it's, uh, and, and also very interesting packaging as well. It's very eye-catching. Um, yeah, we, that's, uh, we use this in order to try to catch the attention in the, in, the, in the food shows. And also, as we display several cheeses, everybody can see what they are uh, trying at, uh, at uh, any, every time, right? But then we also own a small dairy in, uh, in La Mancha, in central Spain, producing manchego. 
and, um, and, and, and yeah, this is our own production. And on top, we also distribute some other Canarian specialties, which are not very easy to find in the, in the, in the, in the, in the markets. Yeah. And I guess Spain is the country for the, the show this year, is it? How, yeah. how has the show been? Been a good one so far? Or, mm, or? Well, for us, it's the first time that we are here. We don't sell much in France. Uh, so I don't really have um, much information to compare um, and uh, well it's, it's quite uh, specialized only for cheeses or buyers from uh, different uh, supermarket chains and fromageries and finners and uh, specialty shops uh, come so let's yeah. see uh, let's see how, uh, how it ends hopefully yeah. we, we we get more contact and at least it's, it's, it's the first step to to get known in in, in France, which is, a mar which is a market with, I don't know how many thousands of different amazing cheeses. So yeah. It's maybe not that easy to 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 get a yeah. um, small piece of the of the pie, right? Yeah. But what, uh, what, are the, what are the countries? Are, it's available in other countries than Spain, though. Uh, yes, but in the United States, uh, uh, also in France, but a little bit, Portugal, Holland, um, Germany. Um, and also outside uh, Europe, we export to, uh, I said, the, the United States, of course, Canada. Um, we also say to sell it to Jordania, and um, whereas Lebanon, you know, to many, many mm. different countries. And yeah. we, we are working on, on, on getting more. Let's see. Next, it's to the Netherlands for another interesting company that caught my eye, Lamuse, which is a cheese exporting company, as well as having two cheese shops in the country. To tell us more is owner of the company, Betty Koster. 30 years ago, I started with my husband in the Netherlands with one cheese shop only and deliveries to restaurants. And my passion is cheese because I'm, my family is a cheese family. I've been in business for well over 40 years right now. And uh, so I knew all about the, the small producers in the Netherlands and uh, about affinage because my grandmother used to do it. And 30 years ago we started with one shop only in Haarlem and I had like maybe five customers, like specialty restaurants which I delivered cheeses to. From that day on it grew, it grew, it grew and uh, now we have two shops in the Netherlands, one in Amsterdam and one in Emuiden. And the name is Lamuse because it's from the word Lamuse girl, which means caressing your tongue. And to me, cheese caresses the tongue, so easy. Uh, two shops, and the one shop is the biggest one in Emode, which is where we mature, where we do the deliveries, and now we do export as well. We started around about 12 years ago with exporting our cheeses, and it seemed the right moment to show the world that we used to keep the best cheeses for ourselves in the Netherlands and send export quality cheeses abroad. But we started to send the best quality abroad and that opened um, quite a world for us. And, and how do you choose the cheeses? We select them by uh, vis visiting the farm, looking at the way the animal are treated, um, then looking at the cheesemakery and tasting and very often a farmer comes to us because now they know about us so if they have a new product or if they have 
change something in their farms, then they come to us and have us taste it, have us judging it. And if I think it's a good product, I'll buy it, of course, yeah. But sometimes it's not worth it, that happens too. So then we decide not to buy it and I advise them to do something else in the quality. And so, it's, so you, you have, how many cheeses would you have? We sell about 400 to 450 kinds of cheese, but it's international. But the Dutch cheeses is around about 120 right now. There's a strange thing going on. I don't know whether it's in England the same, but the restaurants really want local cheeses. And in the old days, we just had the, the hard Gouda style cheeses. But then if you want local cheeses, there's not, not enough choice. So there's a whole new generation of farmers starting to make beautiful new products, <laughs> but in a different style, more like the French, for example, um, this cheese, which is a, a lactically cow's milk cheese from a farm, raw milk. We make beautiful blue cheeses, rindwashed cheeses. So nowadays, every restaurant in the Netherlands can have a cheese platter with all the families on it. Do you also sell the stories of the cheeses? Yeah, most, that's, that's the most important. The storytelling is so important because they all look alike. If you look at them, there's not much. You have a white one and a yellow one. But if you hear the story behind it and how it started, even a corporation, which is a big thing and farmers deliver the milk, it looks rather unpersonal. But if you hear the story behind it and how it started and how proud the farmers can be of their cooperation, it could be an interesting story. We have one of our corporations is, um, where we work with is, has the greenest cheesemakery in the world. So, so sustainable and so, and they had to build it in the shape of a piece of farmland because it's UNESCO heritage. So it had to fit in the land shape. Well, that's amazing if you see that and yeah. learn about that. Yeah, and you, but you said you have cheeses from other countries as well. That you, like you so yeah. you would buy them and then sell them on to. We we usually sell the foreign cheeses in our country, but from some uh, producers, for example, we sell a beautiful cheese from Sweden, Norway. Uh, we work with Germany very close. So if there's a French customer who says, "I would like that Norwegian cheese as well," uh, we can provide them. Because usually it's too hard to buy a pellet from every country because you have to sell it too and you have to be, it has to go a, a run over real quick. So it's easier to buy everything with us and then consolidate and have it shipped to France or Spain. And, and how many countries do you sell to? Uh, oh, I never counted, <laughs> but I think it's not so much. But we do, it's like 45% of our business is export. So our biggest customer is, of course, uh, America, where there's, uh, luckily for us, no tariffs on Dutch cheese. But besides that, Australia, France, Spain, Italy, uh, yeah, and we're working on Switzerland and sometimes Scandinavia, so mm. England. Yeah, and, and this show, is has, you were here last time, has it changed from the last time? Absolutely. We feel the, the French are much more open into international cheeses. Uh, there's even a store now here in, in Paris which is called Cow, and it means cheeses of the world. So they sell uh, foreign cheese as many as they can. And it just, so usually the French were too proud to buy foreign cheeses. And, uh, 
maybe a little bit stubborn, but that changed. There's a new generation, and if you look at the stores, you can see that too. They're very modern, beautiful stores, and um, yeah, that's, so we're happy we're here. It's the second time, but certainly not the last. Another company that I found interesting at the Salon de Fromage was a Bulgarian one, Harmonica, and it's not just because of my love for music. It started out with just one product, organic yogurt, at a time when organic wasn't big, and definitely wasn't big in Bulgaria. But from those humble beginnings, the company has grown and now has hundreds of organic products being sold nationally and to more than 20 countries around the world. And I chatted with Harmonica's Elena Kostova. My name is Elena and I work for uh, Bio Bulgaria is the company and the brand is Harmonica. We are the first organic company in Bulgaria. We started 12 years ago when nobody knew what organic was in Bulgaria and our founding fathers were people who were living overseas. They came back and they wanted to start a family and the idea to start organic wasn't some business plan and euro funding and everything they just wanted to have good food for their kids which is which is why i think it's a successful business because they had everything to, to heart so they started off with uh, dairy uh, we started off with fresh milk and yogurt today we have about uh, 12 different skus of dairy products and over the years we've expanded into all kinds of different categories we have over 122 products Dairy still continues to be our main seller because our turnover mainly is still in Bulgaria, but the last four years we started exporting to more and more markets. Uh, not so much with the dairy drinks, which are excellent. We have excellent kefir and excellent probiotic drinks, but because they're organic, it's three weeks shelf life. So we like uh, limit our export to neighboring countries like Romania and Greece. But with the other products, we've gone as far as uh, Korea, uh, Middle East is a very big client. Also very interested in the dairy because they're prepared to fly the, the products over there. Bulgaria we, seems to be, um, like, like there's, people talk about Greek yogurt, but in Bulgaria they think that the Bulgarian yogurt is the best it is there is. It is Bulgarian yogurt. The Greeks are very good at PR. Uh, the Greeks have been have had their diaspora of Greek people living overseas for much longer, which with much bigger communities. I mean, as far as the states and Australia, you know how big. Uh, so the, the communities are very big, obviously, and that is why so many people outside of Greece have had access to to what they eat and with the feta cheese, because we also have a white cow cheese, which is not feta, but it's 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 the same process of fermentation. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a matter of time. Don't forget that the cultures for yogurt are Bulgarian. Right. And, uh, it's called I, Bulgaricus, right? That's right. So I don't know what they put in the fat, in, in the Greek yogurt, but it's definitely Bulgarian uh, bacteria and cultures. I just want to show you a, pro a product which is very interesting, which is a new product. This is called, I think this is going to sell really, really well overseas. It's a probiotic. It's uh, We take the two cultures for, for, for the yogurt. We uh, mix it with fresh milk. They ferment until it gets to a certain concentration. And then we freeze dry it. And then you get this powdered-like substance, which is pure probiotic. And uh, it smells absolutely divine. It's the natural smell of milk. There's very little lactose. And this, I think, is going to be an absolute breakthrough product. It's called Inner Peace because it's great for your gut. And um, yeah, we're about to launch this in Europe as well and in Bulgaria. And what kind of, how you make that up with? I personally eat a spoon every evening okay. before I go to bed, uh, but you can put it in your porridge or your muesli or your or your fruit salad or whatever. Uh, this is like a family pack, so like I, we're a family of three, so this could last for a month if you take a spoonful uh, a day. 
we're thinking about having like individual sachets as well because we were talking to our Belgium client and they said, you know, the era of weekly shopping with the big cart for the family is like gone. People are living by themselves. People like buy things once off just for themselves. Fridges are uh, far more limited and it's true. I mean, the whole purchasing culture has changed. So we also most probably have like single sachets for this as well. So this is a real great product. And that's why we have this uh, yogurt equals to Bulgaria because uh, Especially in France, people know. Uh, okay, if I'm in a show in the Gulf or it's somewhere far away, people Bulgaria, where's Bulgaria? But like France, people know what Bulgaria is and yogurt and the whole tradition and everything. So yeah. Do you sell online? No. Mm. At the moment, we don't sell online. I was thinking that would sell well online. No, no. This is uh, definitely going to... We have a special strategy for this with the brand ambassadors international because it's a unique product. So I think this, yes, will definitely... Uh, so Harmonica is a very big brand in back home. Uh, it's synonymous with organic because it's the first. It's, uh, and uh, our managing partners are like the godfather of the organic business and they're really cool because they, uh, uh, they're very supportive for startup companies. They share the experience, they share the know-how because the more the better for, for the whole business. It's not like, you know, get away, this is my territory. When I started five years ago for, for the brand, I was like, really excited because uh, everybody in Bulgaria knows what harmonica is and then I went to these international organic fairs and it was like my god this is my competition these eight like Nuremberg this is like eight uh, halls of organic which I have to accept, uh, challenge and you know uh, win over with all the other customers so you know. and I really hope uh, more and more people are going to get informed about harmonica and taste our products because taste is very very important I mean Quality ingredients and uh, organic is just mandatory, uh, compulsory stuff. But taste is very important. That is why we have four great taste awards with, in four different c categories in three consecutive years. So. And of course, we've been talking about the dairy products, but we have all kinds of other products yes, as well. Yes, we have. Uh, our snack category is very strong. Uh, we also do private label for uh, different countries where there's strong organic brands. And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets and what the coronavirus pandemic is doing to the markets this week with INTL FC Stone's Charlie Highland. Hi Jim. So just an update on the dairy markets this week. Um, not surprisingly, the main topic of conversation, of course, is still uh, COVID-19 and, and the impact that's having on the, on the dairy markets. Um, the main challenges at the moment are all around the, the demand side and how that picture is starting to develop. Um, you're seeing a few very different scenarios uh, at play. Obviously, there's been a very large increase in um, demand at retail level in, in a lot of the major consuming countries, um, such as well all across Europe and the US in particular, where we're hearing talk of retail demand um, in, in some from some co-ops uh, for their dairy products up around 30%. So very strong. And um, there has been, though, a offsetting decrease in um, the kind of demand around the food service industry and also challenges there around um, just cancelling contracts due to, um, you know, customers not being in business uh, in, the, in the short term. So really challenging uh, in market and a really difficult one to forecast. Um, it's you know we're starting to see we've seen a significant decrease in prices over the last number of months, but we're starting to see a bit of stability uh, coming back in in the last week uh, on the futures markets. Um, we have been, remained largely unchanged. We've uh, been a little bit up and down across the curve, but largely unchanged on the week for both the butter and skim milk powder here in Europe. 
although the official spot market quotations were down quite considerably, um, down almost 6%, uh, 5.6% on skim milk powder and 1.8% on butter. But they're uh, typically lagging indicators. Uh, other news, I mean, the, the fundamental production picture still seems to be in line with where it has been developing. We got some February New Zealand numbers there out uh, overnight, and they were down about 3.5% uh, year on year when adjusted for the leap year. And uh, But that was in line with expectation. And also we're seeing uh, you know, reasonably strong milk collections in some parts of Europe, such as Germany. Um, latest weekly collections there are up around 1.8% whereas we're seeing uh, continued um, declines in the milk collections in the likes of the UK. So fundamentally, not a lot's changed. Um, COVID-19 continues to be the big question mark and how that's going to impact the markets. Thanks, Charlie. Hopefully we'll have better news next week. INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another show. Unsure of exactly what we'll have for you next week, we may have to slip in an old interview and see if you notice. So if you have something new or something newsworthy, we're always happy to feature you on the show. Just get in touch with us through dairyreporter.com. I'm not going to sign off with anything about social responsibility in these difficult times, but I will say we will come through this. The not knowing when is difficult for sure, but until we do, let's all appreciate those nearest and dearest to us and be mindful of others in all that we do. So as always, please take care, stay safe, and thanks for listening.